Kehinde Andrews is one of the leading black political voices in Britain today. He is Associate Professor in Sociology at Birmingham City University, co-chair of the Black Studies Association and of the Harambe Organization of Black Unity, a regular writer of opinion pieces for The Guardian, Independent, and Ebony magazines, and editor of the series Blackness in Britain. He was also part of the team that launched the first Black Studies degree in Europe. In part one of this episode, Kehinde and I discuss his book, Back to Black, covering his work as a Black activist and educator, as well as discussing institutional racism, the history of Black radicalism, the need for a collective global movement, and much more. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky, and today I'm speaking to Dr. Kehinde Andrews, the author of Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century. Thanks for joining us, Kehinde. I'm, I'm really excited for this opportunity to talk about your book. No, happy to be here. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you, you came to write Back to Black? It was a culmination of a lot of things. So my PhD research was on Black radicalism and the Black self-mentary school movement. So some of the theoretical stuff there was really about trying to say, well, what is black radicalism and what isn't? Because I grew up in black power tradition, black radical tradition in the UK. I've uh, been making these arguments for a very, very long time. Started the Harambe Organization for Black Unity. And what was very clear was that there wasn't really, people didn't really know what, there was a lot of things which black radicalism isn't, which it always gets confused with. And so I really just wanted to make it really clear, this is what black radical politics is and this is what it really is not, I guess. So just to clarify for people who are listening, what is black radicalism to you and what isn't? So black radicalism is two things. One is black, which is, sounds quite simple, but actually isn't, right? And that means African, African diaspora, the idea that the color, our color, the way we look and represent something, it's not like important in and of itself. Like It's not like a genetic basis for blackness. It is a, this tells us about our present and our history and, and connects us together. And then the radical element of that is the politics that seek to overturn the system. I mean, this is where we get stuck a lot of the time because there's very few politics really which are actually about radical overhaul. And so one of the big misconceptions is that radicalism is about methods. So like if something's violent, then it's radical. Well, that's complete nonsense. The the most violent system we have ever seen on the face of the planet is Western imperialism. So what I was really trying to argue in the book is that there is a really strong radical tradition the isn't about violence, certainly isn't about misogyny as well. I guess that often gets tied in and is different from some of the other movements that we might usually consider to be radical. Yeah, I mean, I think that often the difference is that if something is state-sanctioned, it's not considered violent. The sort of top-down approach, I think, is permissible in our society. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, completely, yeah. The state has a monopoly of violence, of course. Exactly. It's just that when those roles are reversed, then people get very up in arms. But just to think about that a little bit, to situate Black radicalism within a historical context, I think a lot of these movements are often connected with various levels of success, although this can obviously be very difficult to measure. But on the flip side, I mean, in your view, why and how have Black radical movements failed in the past? And and what kind of radical thinking is required to fight the racism that's embedded in our political structures? Well, the reason that they have failed is because it's really difficult, right? I mean, if we talk like radical is to overturn, is to overthrow. Malcolm X talked in the 60s about the word revolution being 
misused, and this word radical is misused all the time because radical it hasn't been successful. Well, if it had been successful, we wouldn't we wouldn't have the, the system we have, right? So it's really difficult, and there's a number of reasons why, specifically that kind of moment, and the reason the book's called Back to Black is because um, I argue that in the '60s there was this precipice of revolution. Malcolm X is talking about a black revolution. That's a realistic possibility. And if you trace back what's happened, what went wrong, there were two things. One, there was a lot of violence done by the states, various states, and just killed loads of people, right? And then the second part of that was there was some concessions were made where we got race relations legislation on both sides of the Atlantic. Independence is granted or won. You have an emerging black middle class. I mean, I'm a professor there, which would not have been possible. And it's quite unlikely there, but that definitely wouldn't have been possible 50 years ago. And so we've kind of gone down the road of trying to reform the system. And hopefully by now we've realized that was a cul-de-sac. It was a dead end. It, it wasn't going to get us what we need. We're going to get into Malcolm X in a little bit, but I'm wondering to use... I think one of the issues that you're already striking at is, well, to use Audre Lorde's words, one of the issues is using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, right? Like, so how do anti-racist movements and black movements sort of unwittingly reproduce the racist structures that they're actually trying to dismantle? Um, it's really interesting because I think I, in Back to Black, one of the examples I use is Black Lives Matter has been really powerful and really brought attention to police violence. But the mechanism through which it's done that has been the smartphone, right? And by videoing everything and videoing police brutality, there's probably no better example of a commodity which is produced by racial capitalism. Like it's, oh, we only have this technology. We're only able to have this technology in our hands because the wealth, the minerals are literally stolen out of Africa for, for very little, right? And sometimes actually mined by children. So the poverty in Africa allows us to have, and then if you actually look at where they're constructed in Asia and the sweatshop labor, etc. This, so this is like the definition of a, of a racial capitalist produced product, but it is the one that has sparked all these protests. And I think sometimes that's the complicity that we have. We're in the system. And if what we're trying to do is try to reform it and try to make it fairer for us here, it's always gonna we're always gonna be ultimately just reproducing the structure and the problem as a whole. Yeah, I mean I think this is really kind of a complicated issue because I think one of the reasons, as you said, that BLM has been so successful is that because we are actually able to document things in a way that we never were able to, not to the same scale as before, you know, I think it has to produce a certain reaction in society. Like, for example, would the protests this summer have been to the magnitude that they were if we weren't able to actually watch a video of police officer choking George, you know, sitting on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes. Like we all saw it recorded on a smartphone and it sort of elicited this visceral reaction in the public. But it's like, obviously these things have been happening ever since police have existed, <laughs> right? And even before that. So I don't know, it's, it's obviously a complicated issue. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are in general on social media activism. I mean, is it actually helpful or is it just something that makes white people feel better about themselves? Or does it actually serve this important purpose of bringing radical ideas to new audiences? It's twofold, right? So it's one of the things, the good thing, like if, as a, if the whole purpose of Better Black and Black Radicalism, it can't work unless it's global. Like it really, there was just the global Black nation, you need to have across the diaspora, that's the only way to have really, truly radical politics. And in some ways, the technology for that has brought us closer together. I mean, it's, there's so much easier. Like, you can contact. I, I, I talked to this in Africa, like, just the other, just before I came on, actually, I was, somebody was tweeting me from South Africa, and that's, again, something you couldn't have done previously, right? 
But at the same time, the fact that we have access to this technology also makes us believe that we're making progress, that we're more comfortable, that we don't need to have a revolution. So the technology is useful to connect us, but it is also not useful because it can often prevent us from taking on revolutionary ideas. So it's just really like, so the example I usually use is the Universal Negro Improvement Association, the Garvey Movement, UNIA, which is the 1920s. It's the most significant, successful black radical organization that ever existed. Millions of members across dozens of countries. And it wasn't even telephone at this point, really. But why was it that they had so many members? It's because you didn't need to convince people that we needed something else, right? But in the 20s, everybody understood racism was what racism was. Whereas now, you have to convince people that there's racism before they're going to unite. So the technology, it's an ironic thing, right? It should make it easier, but in some ways, it actually makes us more distant. Right. I think you can make this connection as well with sexual violence that I think there needs to be an exceptional amount of evidence in both cases, whether it's racist violence or violence against women. You have to, because of, uh, I think, social media and the sort of access to information we suddenly have, I think that the sort of threshold that you're supposed to achieve for proving that violence is, is sort of impossible. But yeah, and it, sorry, I was just going to say about the uh, social media thing. It's 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 a, it's a double-edged sword. It's, it's good because you get people out there, but also this is tied into the sorry the question about are we complicit with the structures? Is there is this kind of model where and sexual violence is, is the same, where we're in this kind of protest mode where it takes something to happen that's really bad, obviously bad, and then we protest and react to it. And that model of doing protest is a really liberal model. So, for example. Black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth. You can't protest that. It's not like it'll be a, a video of it that you can see. You know what I'm saying? So and that would be a, something we should always be thinking about. But the movements kind of rally around these major flashpoints and then get stuck in this process of re- always reacting. And, and that, in doing that, it just reinforces the status quo and we always, we're always responding to it rather than trying to do something alternative. Right. I think what you're getting at is that sometimes it feels like performing outrage online sort of has replaced the the real work of organizing sometimes. And and the best example I can think of this recently is the sort of black square activism that happened on Instagram at the height of the BLM protests. A bunch of people sort of unwittingly posted black squares to sort of prove that, I mean, a lot of white people, particularly to prove that they were going to be silent at this time and amplify Black voices. But ironically, because they were posting a bunch of Black squares on Instagram, it actually like fucked up the algorithm and like erased or sort of hid a lot of the real activism that was being done on behalf of like radical Black movements. So I don't know. Do you think that it's more of a passive allyship on social media or it kind of sounds like you're a bit ambivalent about it as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it definitely is a, a large proportion of that. But I don't think it's, I like most of social media, I don't think it's really worse or better than real life. I just think we can see it <laughs> clearer. And I think it's given a, an avenue for that kind of, that really transparent, that really transparent kind of allyship. But I, I think social media generally just replicates what's happening in real life. So there are definitely people and there are definitely People who have, I wouldn't necessarily say they've replaced activism with clicktivism. I don't think they're probably ever involved in activism. It's just a space where they can go and, and rant about stuff. But there is also social media has been good. And the good use of it, you can see in BLM, 
is the connection to the real world. I mean, look, if, if anything doesn't have a connection to something outside, if it's just social media, then there's really little point in doing it. But it is also a good way to rally people. How do you get people out onto the street? How do you get people connected? It's, it's good and bad. It's, it's not all good. It's not all bad. I guess it depends how you use it, I guess. Right, because I guess there's all these sort of information posts that I've been seeing on social media as well, sort of explaining what you were just talking about. For instance, the fact that the mortality and childbirth rate for Black women is so much higher than it is for white women. And I, I don't know if people, I think that that information has been sort of readily disseminated online and like has raised awareness. So you said that it was sort of a liberal model, but like conversely, how would, in your mind, how would we actually organize around the idea of combating the child mortality rate as opposed to other issues, if that makes sense? Yeah, so that's an issue where if you go into why so many, so many different layers in terms of it's going to be where we live, it's going to be environmental toxins, it's going to be about wealth, it's going to be about definitely going to be about health service and treatment. It's going to be about lots of different things, right? And if you think about what has black radicalism always been, it's about, well, actually, we need, we cannot rely on the state for certain things that we need to build alternatives. And so if I was saying, how do we, how do we fix that? The kind of liberal way to say, well, look, there's a problem. Let's go and see what we can get from the state to do something about it. Well, actually, no, we need to be taking care of our own, and not taking care of our own, but taking care of our own economy, building different stuff. There's a kind of argument to say that, that's an issue which is produced by our economic relationship largely through racial capitalism. So can we create a different economic relationship? So it's part, it would be much part of a much broader approach to say that we need to build alternatives, which is a very different thing to say, well, here's the issue. Let's protest the state to see, what, to see how the state will respond, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. So, I mean, do you have sort of like this idea of like, we keep us safe, it's not the state that keeps us safe, sort of uh, communities producing alternatives to the state. But yeah, I mean, are there any sort of ideas you have like in on this particular issue? Like, what would that actually look like? What would a community-driven alternative to our healthcare system actually look like? <laughs> well, I, mean, I, think I think the Black Panther Party is actually a really good example, right? Where the Black Panthers are a revolutionary organization, right? So they want revolution. and But they have this idea where they say the concept is survival pending revolution. So acknowledging that just surviving isn't the revolutionary goal, but you need to survive. And one of the things they did in the Panthers was healthcare. Like it was a proper effort to get people access to healthcare, health clinics, community health drives, kind of taking control of public health. It was a massive part of what the, what the Panthers did, which is very different to just raising awareness of an issue and then asking health providers to do things. They just said, and said, look, we have problems with healthcare and we're going to work to make sure we have access and we're going to work to make sure we can do what we can do as a community. And I think that would be an approach that we should take to this issue, I think, which would be but definitely be beneficial than expecting the state to respond. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much this is happening in the UK, but as a result of not just protests, the civil rights protests that were happening this summer, but also just the coronavirus in general. We've seen all of these mutual aid groups pop up around the states. I'm involved in one. They're neighborhood-based, and there's all these things that you do in your mutual aid groups, including buying groceries for your neighbors, distributing healthcare supplies, like all the stuff that you're talking about. So I think maybe that's a sort of modern iteration of what the Black Panthers were doing. But on that note of the Black Panthers and talking about organizing tactics, I'd like to reflect a little bit on what's changed since that, since the rise of social media and what's going on right now. And 
One of the figures you identify with in the book is Malcolm X, and you've brought him up already, but what do you think Malcolm X would have had to say about BLM and today's campaigns for racial justice? And what would he be doing and saying right now? I mean, I think in many ways, BLM is the modern day civil rights movement. If you look at it's just street protests, uh, nonviolent street protests that try to force to work with elected officials to try and bring change, etc. I mean, there's a kind of model there where BLM, it looks a bit different because the leadership's different and certainly been influenced by black feminist ideas. But generally, it is a modern day civil rights movement. And we know exactly what Malcolm X was saying about that because he was, he was the strongest critic of the civil rights movement probably you ever read, right? Where he would have said, look, this is, there is no, what does he say? Like, this system can no more provide freedom, justice, and equality than a chicken can lay a duck egg. So if we keep trying to reform it, we're just going to be banging our heads against the wall. And Malcolm was really one saying, actually, yes, we need survival. So yes, we should be trying to get support to make sure that people aren't dying because racism is a matter of life and death. But we should be globalizing this struggle. This should be an international struggle, which is not about trying to reform a system. It's about trying to get rid of it. Right. And this idea of globalizing the struggle, one of the ideas that I think about a lot is Paul Gilroy's idea of the Black Atlantic, which is a metaphor that he uses to talk about the Black diaspora. And he describes it as sort of a modern political and cultural formation that desires to break free from the structures and nation states that facilitate this racist and and nationalist politics, getting at a global community that excuse itself of of imperialist structures. And so in, in light of this, what do you envision as the ideal relationship between these various national BLM movements? Because I think that the, especially the ones that are happening in the US and UK are very much in conversation with one another. Yeah, I mean, this is a good, and this is, again, why I guess BLM is, maybe I'm being slightly critical, would say it's just as, not just, but it's not, I, I want to, I guess I should say that it's not necessarily an insult to say it's a new civil rights movement. Civil rights movement is very, very, very successful. And in the UK as well. So I think that the fact they're connected isn't, I mean, there wasn't that many direct connections between the civil rights movement in the UK and the US, although there were some, certainly, but largely that was probably a lot down to technology. So if we had the technology that we had now, there probably would have been quite much clearer connections. But it is a good effort that BLM have made to internationalize. But the question really isn't necessarily about the relationship, it is about the relationship to politics. Like you can have a, you can have a connection based on a kind of liberal way of how do we understand what the problem is, how do we fix it? Which I think is very different to the kind of, what Malcolm would say, or the Garveyite global black nation. But if you actually listen to Malcolm speak, he's thinking, like he says, I'm not an American. Like, I'm an African in America. And the organization of Afro-American unity, the way he defines American, yeah, the way he defines African-American, is basically everybody's not in Africa. Like, it really is like the diaspora. And it's not just that there's a connection between different national groups. It is actually, we're just one national group who are organically connected. And it's the kind of the same, what is the model there would be, it's the same organization, not different organizations coming together. I don't know, I think it's a more substantive connection than what you're, what you're seeing today. But do you feel like that idea of the Black global nation is prominent within the BLM movement or do you think it's too localized? I think there's some, one of the ones where the lyrics sometimes are there, but I'm not sure the... Uh, the melody is like I don't I mean we talk about internationalism but there is still I think in BLM a very strong American understanding of things and I think probably in the UK well in the UK less than because of, because of diaspora and because we have heavily influenced by the states there's always going to be more of a, a, a kind of global way of looking at things but honestly if you look at the platform 
the writings, the agenda of BLM in the US. It's it's a very national it's a very national based organization. But I don't think it has genuinely organically taken on that idea of the global black nation at all. Mm. And do you feel like this is an issue that you hear in black British movements that it is too American centric? And are there organizing discussions about how to globalize it more? I mean, I think in the US, there's actually, I think this is definitely someone that's not definitely, I mean, gone back, there's always been a kind of trend of nationalism in African American, mm-hmm. in some African American thought. So, for example, when Garvey went to America, people like W.B. Du Bois projected him as a Jamaican. So, well, you know, he's Jamaican, eh? he can't understand America. So, there's, there's a long history of that. Today, you're seeing ADOS, the American Descendants of Slaves movement, which is one of the most reactionary backwards black organizations around today, which is literally American exceptionalism. There's something different about African-Americans and is largely about pushing back against immigration from like the Caribbean and Africa, which is totally ignorant and it misses out the global perspective. And I think that the big thing to say would be that you can't understand racism in America or black people in America without understanding racism globally. That's again to quote Malcolm. It's been a lot of Malcolm quotes. That's again to quote Malcolm. It's not an American system. It's not an American problem. It's a world problem. And there just is a real bad historical analysis in some of the African-American movements. And again, I'm not saying BLM. I don't want to criticize everybody in BLM because I know BLM have made a big effort to come to Europe, to go to Latin America, to travel around. But I think that conceptually, there is unfortunately quite a big strain of American exceptionalism in a lot of African-American intellectual thought. Yeah. I mean... It's tricky, right? Because racism is a, is a global problem. But I think maybe the sensitivity is that there are such specific articulations of that in places like the US and the UK, for instance. I don't know. For instance, this is just one example, but obviously the police in the UK don't have guns and just the amount of gun violence it seems very like American-centric. But that being said, of course, there's still rampant amount of police violence in the UK. And I think what I saw a lot was just that people were kind of talking about this overarching global issue, but then getting at the local articulations of that issue. But I don't think that they they need to be mutually exclusive. Yeah, I I mean, I think the police is a good example. So yeah, because the police don't carry guns, there's a lot less deaths generally than the police. But if the police did carry guns here, they'd kill black people at exactly the same rate. So it's the same issue, it's just a different articulation because the society is slightly different. But again, even to understand that difference in America, the real difference in America and Britain is Britain offshored its colonial violence to the Caribbean. And if you look at the Caribbean, it's worse. Actually, the police are far more violent and kill far more people in places like Jamaica. Like, it's terrible. The police are like, the, like yeah, I mean, it's a whole different level. So if you look at Jamaica where the slavery happened, in the British Empire, it's, it's actually a lot more similar than we, we would think. But America was a settler colony. So it had to have dealt with black people within the nation state. I mean, black people outdate most European migration into the United States. So there's, they've always been dealt with. The violence has been very much, the violence against African-Americans is very much a part of the U.S. nation state formation. That's why the police carry guns, right? That's why it's more violent, more generally, compared to Britain. So it's the same problem. It's just that America's a more extreme version of it because it's a settler colony and generally because America is just Europe on steroids, right? A lot of Europeans <laughs> go to... No, this is what happens, right? A lot of Europeans go to a place and act like barbarians and create a state, right? And that's, that's essentially what you get with America. So America's quite good to understand racial relations because it's so extreme, but it's not different. It's just an extreme version of the same thing that we're facing in, in Britain. 